the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today I have with me Dr. Ian Scott from the University of British Columbia. Ian is the Director and Scientist for the Center for Health Education Scholarship, CHESS, and also Associate Professor in the Department of Family Practice, again at UBC. Welcome Ian to the show, it's a great pleasure to have you today and I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Oh well, thank you for inviting me, Sarah, and I'm very happy to be here as well. Great, thank you. So let's just start from the way that I usually start, which is uh, trying to get an idea of people's growing up times. Because to me, that's kind of the moments in which you start developing your curiosities and your interests. And there's usually a thread from there until your career. So can you give me a, a, a sense of what was growing up for Ian? Like, who was your family? What kind of things did you do as a family or alone? What kind of interests you pursue? Maybe heroes along the way. All those things. Sure. Well, I'll talk about my mom and dad first. I think it might be instructive. So, my father emigrated from Scotland uh, when he was a young man after the Second World War. He wanted to leave the UK uh, after uh, living, being a young person living through the war. And my mom uh, was born in Saskatchewan, as, and as a young woman, they homesteaded across country in a on a hay rack with horses, sending their furniture ahead. Uh, during the depression and uh, and and uh, um, moved into a house with no windows in northern Manitoba in November. So oh so God. they have they have you know quite interesting origin stories. Neither of them had the opportunity to go to high school. and so so um, they they valued education highly um, because they didn't get a chance to have it. And in fact, you know, I realize now that we grew up, actually quite poor, but you didn't realize that when you were living in that environment and in that neighborhood, but they saved uh, all of the baby bonus checks as they called them at the time in the bank account, which they didn't touch uh, in case either my sister or I went to school. So they, they highly valued education. Um, you know, it was a, it was a time of, you know, where I think at least children in my neighborhood raised themselves a little bit in that um, we didn't go to camp, we didn't go on holidays, um, we weren't enrolled in after-school programs or uh, or uh, sports. But, but what that meant was uh, that we had to entertain ourselves. And so sometimes that led to us getting into mischief, but a lot of times it meant us... Uh, figuring things out. So we invented our own games. We, um, you know, rode our bikes all over the neighborhood. We had to resolve conflicts with each other because there were no parents around and no structure. Um, we took things apart and put them back together and fixed our bikes. And all of those things, my my childhood recollection is me and a bunch of friends in the neighborhood just just tearing around doing things not just in the summer but it felt like all the time that was our our growing up and so i i think you know there was some challenges with not being having those experiences or opportunities but there are also some affordances in that 
that we kind of had to figure a whole bunch of stuff out on our own that that I think helped me develop as the person I am and 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 develop my curiosity early on. Right. Uh, it just reminds me of a conversation I had over the weekend with my partner and he's telling me, I don't know how am I al alive for all the stuff we did with no supervision around, but yet we were reflecting about the skills you gain, like the ability to figure things out of reacting in, in moments of um, difficult moments that, that requires quick decision-making and things like that. Yet he thought, hmm, there was like really close calls. <laughs> Did you have any close call or things that got you in trouble all the time that you realized, geez, that was not really a good idea? Uh, nothing really bad. I mean, some of the people I was friends with were were. were quite risk takers so you know sending them ac across from the house to the garage on the clothesline uh to see what would happen and then it breaks <laughs> part way through and they go plummeting to earth um we we unfortunately uh would steal fruit from people's yards we would climb go to people's yards climb the trees steal the fruit but then we were quite industrious we'd go back to a house where there were no parents in it and we'd bake pies so it was a bit of a it was a bit of a contrast that were these kind of you know, scrabby little kids, but then we would steal all this fruit and say, well, let's go back and make some pies. And so we'd bake cherry pies and apple pies and things. So okay. it was, it, it, I have to say it was quite fun, but I didn't, you know, it at the time, it just seemed like this is what you did. Mm -hmm. Which also exposed you to different experiences. And, and I'm also wondering, based on those experiences, how did they shape your interests as you went into high school and then choosing what to do after high school? Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents were very loving, but we, you know, we had no book, there were no books in the house. And I remember in grade nine, I asked my parents uh, if we could get an encyclopedia and bless them, they uh, went out and bought a used Encyclopedia Britannica for me when I was in grade nine. And so I, I would read that every night. I don't know that I was actually learning anything from it. Um, but, but I had this, I think, intention of wanting to know more about the world. And so, you know, I would crack open the L, you know, book mm -hmm. and uh, just open it to a random page and start reading again, where I don't think it was very purposeful, nor probably had any resulted in any retention. But I think it was this kind of sense that I wanted to do things. My high school was an inner city high school. One of the residents the other day asked me where I went to high school. And I told him, and he said, oh, that's a ghetto school. And he said, oh, sorry, Dr. Scott. And I said, no, no, it's fine. Oh. <laughs> um, but the, there were teachers at the high school were, that were highly, highly um, committed to the students. And, and in fact, you know, to a degree now that I didn't recognize at the time. Um, we had a full-time police officer in the school. We were the first school in Vancouver to have a full-time police officer. So there was, you know, there was some violence in the school and gangs, but there was also these teachers that were highly committed. Um, and so, so, so if, if someone was interested in learning, they would work with you. They would give you uh, a little bit of extra attention. And I think it was exciting for them as well. In my high school, about 350 people that graduated, it was a school of about 2,000, 2,200. Of the 350 people that graduated, about 30 went on to post-secondary studies, which is small, but but those 30, I think, were mostly going on to post-secondary studies because of the influence of the teachers that we had. And so so I think, you know, I recognized early on the value of, of uh that teachers could have on people and how they could transform their lives uh, 
to a degree, I think. Right. And what were your most favorite subjects that took you into medicine? Or did you do anything before medicine or medicine was your first choice? Oh, I did a number of things before. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, I liked I liked biology and um, I liked chemistry. And then because I got some good marks in grade 11, um, I was invited to this English 12P class for preparation. And the instructor, Mr. Ashworth, who I still remember fondly, invited me and a number of other students and what he did was we had to write uh, an essay every week and he would get it marked from a by a university marker and uh, and we would get skewered on the for the first four months uh, by our writing but but by the end all, everyone in the class became a relatively capable writer and so I was quite interested in writing as well I, I think I've, I'm not as good a writer now as I was then uh, maybe the challenge of writing scientific writing compared to creative writing but but I learned to write and uh, and then and then after high school I I went to the University of British Columbia for three months and dropped out um, I, and I will say you know I probably had a little bit of a mood disorder then, but mostly I felt like a stranger in a strange land. I was in rooms of people that really seemed to know what was going on, and I had no idea what was going on. I mean, it was all just, uh, I was a stranger in a strange land, I think. Mm -hmm. And so so I dropped out of university, and I kicked around for a while. I went to community college. I worked in a plywood mill, um, driving a forklift. Um and then I, I went to a different university in Vancouver, mm -hmm. Simon Fraser University, and and didn't do particularly well the first uh, few semesters there. And then I think I started to figure things out. So my transition to post-secondary education was quite uh, protracted, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me a while to, to figure out how to be in that environment, I think. And then I started to flourish there. Um, I was still working in the plywood mill. I got an NSERC uh, 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 summer student grant. I was uh, would work in the plywood mill Friday night from midnight till till seven in the morning Saturday, go to school, had my NSERC grant. It was all quite a lot of fun then. And I was really exposed to lots of interesting ideas there because it was a bit of a smaller school at that time as well. I still was sticking with biology. And um, and at the end of my degree, I did an honors degree. Uh, at the end of my degree, I, I was hired to be the lab tech for the lab that I'd done some work in. And so uh, I did that for a year. And I guess this is another bit of a theme of my life. It's sort of accident and happenstance and good fortune that they, uh, the instructor for the fourth year molecular biology course was unavailable. So they asked me if I would like to teach it. I think they were really in a pinch having an undergrad with a lab, with, with a, who's a lab tech teach it, but I loved it. And, and, and the students loved it. And we had master's students in the room and, and PhD students. And I thought, you know, well, maybe I'll become a researcher in foundational sciences. But but I think I, I I saw how hard that was and how you had people dependent on you, uh, on your grant writing ability. And I also saw that it was a somewhat could be a lonely pursuit in a way. And I, I did like people. And mm -hmm. so I started thinking about medicine really at, at that point. 
I think it had come up once before where a guidance counselor said, you should think about medicine. And I thought he was nuts. I mean, who <laughs> would become a physician? It just didn't seem plausible. But, but I think when I was older, I could, I could potentially see myself becoming a, a, a physician. So, so that, that was my journey. And then because it was late in the year when I decided that I, I applied to, to, I could only apply to about four medical schools in Canada because I'd passed the application deadline. But I had the good fortune that McMaster was still one of the schools that had the deadline ahead of me. And so I applied to them mm. and, uh, and I was accepted to McMaster. And so I moved from Vancouver and went to McMaster Medical School. And it was, again, I'm very lucky that I was able to attend to get in and 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 it was an, a very innovative program then and I had a a really great time meeting a a ton of very interesting people that were helped me grow as an individual. Right. You said something interesting which is that one of your major challenges was not really the well I guess part of was the topic but mostly was the adjustment to the environment you had a, a an issue kind of accommodating yet you moved from one institution to the next to the next and even from the west to to here yeah how did you figure it out or what was the pivotal moment that you said oh that's how it works now I'm fine yeah so you know I I'm not sure if I know there probably was a maturity piece that I just got to a point that I could it started to make a bit of sense because I became a more psychologically perhaps stable person we all become more psychologically stable as we as we age i think i got tired of failing and so there was a piece of that and i think you know it's it's like any skill set i guess you know and any transition transitions are are times of of significant potential growth but also significant setback as we know and and i think that i'd i'd you know I'd learned enough by failing in those other settings that that perhaps I knew how to make that transition better, which speaks to, you know, there may be we may be able to help people in that transition rather than just hoping it all works out, uh, mm -hmm. particularly for kids who are from underrepresented, you know, groups or backgrounds. Right. So now you're in McMaster and then yep. you do medicine and then your choice about family practice. Yeah, so I was always a generalist. I mean, from the time of, you know, taking apart my mom's dryer and fixing it to, you know, uh, fixing, I bought a car, it needed all kinds of work. There was a neighbor across the lane and he helped me fix it and I reground the valves, you know, by hand in the engine and it was all very interesting to me. So I was always a generalist and so, so in many ways, by intention, when I started at McMaster, I was interested in family medicine, and I continued on with that. And then I, 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 I met my my wife there, and uh, and so she was she was one year behind me, and she was doing uh, uh, finishing off her residency in family medicine, and then then she started doing a, a fellowship in community oriented primary care, um, and uh, and so. You know, I was whiling away working at a, some doing STI clinics and working at a community health center. And then I got approached by the community medicine residency program because I'd always done sort of community health stuff throughout my residency. And and uh, they said, would you like to join the Royal College residency program in community medicine? And I was like, well, no, because how long is that going to take? And they said, <laughs> well, you get credit for 
you get credit for one year of your family practice. One year will be, will you do a master's and then other year essentially is doing public health and then you're done. I'm like, oh, well, I get to do a master's. That seems like a good idea. So, so again, I kind of fell into this, right? It was just an opportunity. And the master's that I did was in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics, but I was always interested, I think, even then in a, in a, in both quantitative and qualitative uh, methods. And so I sort of shaped my master's into, um, I did sociology courses and social work courses and, and, you know, I won't call myself a qualitative methodologist or even maybe a qualitative researcher, but I gained skills in understanding that. And my my thesis was using a technique called photo voice uh, in street-involved women, asking them to take pictures of things in their lives that made them healthy and ill. And so so even though I was in clinical epidemiology at Master, the, you know, the bastion of evidence-based quantitative medicine, I was able to do a, a qualitative, you know, a little you know, photo voice, which was a relatively new methodology then. Carolyn Wang had just completed, I think, her first study in China. And I read this paper in development because I've kind of read widely then. I thought, oh, I could do that in Canada, I think. So so, so I was fortunate again that I could shape my master's to be quite, uh, to have quite a bit of breadth and again, be a generalist, you know, not just focus on one particular aspect of research. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that's very intriguing. Uh, for one, I was wondering why what why you didn't take engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I think the math was too hard. When I, when I went to school at at Cyber Phrase University, I did first year calculus and I got A's. And I thought, oh, I know math, and so I took a second year course in. I think it was vector equation analysis. And after three days, I'm like, I'm tapping out. This is way <laughs> above this is way above my any skills that I have now or I'll ever gain. So <laughs> funny. Okay, you, you finished that. And then when was the point that you came back to Vancouver and how that happened? Yeah. So I finished the, the residency and then I came back to Vancouver because my parents were aging and my wife was kind enough to come with me. And so um and and so uh, I started working in Vancouver doing HIV primary care, and and I sort of had to leave some of my research interest uh, to the side. And I did HIV primary care for a couple of years, um, and and then um, the Department of Family Practice at UBC contacted me and said, you know, there's a we're we're advertising for a job for someone to lead the undergrad education program and be a clinical supervisor in the residency program, we'd like you to apply. And so again, that was good fortune because I, I fully expected that I would probably not carry on as a primary care HIV doc because, you know, I found the work very rewarding. I was the only person doing lo a locum in Vancouver for HIV primary care. So the, the group that did the work was constantly taking holidays and keeping me employed because they wanted to have someone that that would fill in for them. But but um, but I thought, you know, I, I'm seeing lots of young men that are quite sick because this was still before very highly targeted antiretroviral therapy. And so 
So I was thinking I, I still miss seeing kids and, and older people and women. And so I was thinking of not continuing on. And then I got this job offer to, or this opportunity to apply for the job in family practice. And I became the undergrad director and the clerkship director all on the first day. And so it was a little overwhelming at the beginning, but I was back in education, something that I'd always been interested in because at McMaster, I'd created a community health day. I created a survey assessing when I was in first year, what the students thought about first year. I tutored in the PBL program when I was a resident. So I was always interested in education. And so this was a great opportunity to come back to education after a few years. Okay. And what has been kind of the most rewarding aspect of those years in that position? Yeah, I think, you know, often in educational jobs, at least that my experience, it may not be the experience of others is that you're often a manager. Um, you're making sure the program's working. You're making sure there's enough preceptors. You're dealing with problems that come up around students or preceptors. And 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 UBC went through, uh, and, and my predecessor at CHESS, Joanna Bates, she was the vice dean education or senior associate dean education at that time. UBC was going through a very rapid uh, expansion. And so as the undergrad director of family practice, I was right in the middle of planning all of that expansion. And so I wasn't just managing, we were we were being creative. We were thinking, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna do that? How will we structure a program? Um, and, you know, I, I, I worked with jo Joanna off and on quite closely. There was a time we were in an airport departure lounge and she got a phone call from the architect saying we need to know in the next two hours how many pbl rooms we need and she said i'll call you back and then joanna and i she said ian we're going to figure out how many pbl rooms we need and we sat down with a piece of paper and started doing the math and then she called mm -hmm. him back and it was it was fun to be in that kind of pressure cooker mm -hmm. of creativity i think which is not always part of education in some ways sometimes it's a lot of management and so so that was quite exciting um, and, and, and then, you know, I was, I was always chipping away a little bit while I was in the fam department of family practice do doing little bits of research. So, so that was sort of my entry back into research. We were, the family practice match was at its lowest point in the CARMS program in 2003. And a bunch of us family docs were sitting around having a beer and we said, why is the match so low? And then we said, well, why don't we find out? And so, so we got some money and created a big survey and sort of surveyed a bunch of medical schools across Canada, met the medical students in the first two weeks of medical school, asking them what they want to do. We were able to link it later on to their CARMS match and, and see how stable different careers were. And so, so, you know, it really, that piece grew out of just a, conver a conversation with family practice colleagues of, well, why don't we figure it out now? You know, we were kind of naive and, and we ended up, you know, I think doing some reasonable research, but it was, it was, you know, it, it was a, a, on a, a little bit of a whim and then it's become quite a significant data set now. Right. It's interesting to me that you have been able, maybe it's because of your breadth of interests and experiences, that you've been able to use your leadership position, not just to focus on one thing, but to be able to explore other areas and bring you back to research which is not a story that you usually hear from leaders. So I appreciate that. I mean, one of the challenges for me, and I'll be completely honest, is that as a generalist, you know, if you looked at my list of research projects right now, it's all over the place. And so I feel 
you know, fortunate and I enjoy doing lots of different things. I don't feel particularly with it. I don't feel like I have a depth of knowledge in any particular area. And sometimes I'm jealous of people that know everything about one thing, because mm -hmm. I know a little bit about a lot of things. And and sometimes there are great affordances to that, but sometimes there's great challenges as well where where you have blind spots because you just don't know the subject area to the depth that others do. Mm -hmm. But we need both, right? I'm kind of on your side. I like knowing a little bit about a few things <laughs> that I struggle. Well, well. So then you were in that position. How did you end up being in chess? It was because through, through Joanna at the time or there was something that captured your attention? Yeah, two things. Kevin, Kevin, Eva and Joanna. So so oh. Joanna, Joanna, um, for those in the audience that never met her and Joanna, unfortunately, died of ALS. Uh, I think it is now three years ago. Um, very sadly, mm -hmm. um, Joanna was and I don't say this in a negative way, a bit of a puppet master or a Wayne Gretzky. She wouldn't see the where the puck was going to be. And she was very prescient in you know, the, the way she operated. So I we were we were somewhere, Joanna and I were at some social event at the university, and she said, you know, Ian, I'm I'm going to retire at some point. And I said, oh, that's great, Joanna. I'm really happy. I think, you know, you've worked so hard, it'll be great for you to retire. And she said, no, no, Ian, and you're going to take over chess. And I looked at her like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, this was like three years before the job was even available. And, and wow. but Joanna was thinking that far in advance about succession and about people that she sort of, you know, saw in her environment. And then the other thing that happened was um, not me, but someone at the Department of Family Practice asked uh, someone from Chess to come and help us build our educational, I think, skills probably. And Kevin Eva was this guy that came every two weeks and brought a different paper. And there were about eight or 10 of us. And I just thought the papers that he brought for us to read and to discuss were the most interesting papers I'd ever read. And I was, at least I felt like I was the most engaged in the group. Others may disagree, but I, I was, I thought this is just fascinating. We're talking about how people learn and how people think. And we're reading George Bordage and we're reading all these interesting people. And it's like, wow, this is just the greatest thing. And so, so I started then thinking more about health professions education. The, the other piece that happened, again, part of this accident and happenstance was when the medical school at, McMa uh, at UBC, um, it had been using the same curriculum that had expanded the medical school with all around the province because they couldn't change two things at once. And I think that was wise. Then they sort of said, you know, we've had the same curriculum for 15 years. We need to change it. And so I was asked to be in charge of the continuity working group. There are about seven or eight working groups. And I was working away on thinking about how we could embody continuity in the new curriculum, continuity of patients, continuity of, of place, continuity of preceptor, continuity of student experiences. And and then the the vice dean at the time who was of education, who was not Joanna A. Leonger, she was running chess came to me and said, you know, the the design group, the group that's supposed to pull all these reports together and make the design, they're having a hard time with uncertainty, Ian. You know, you're a family doc, you're a generalist, you would be able to help them, I think. Would you like to join them? So I said, sure, I guess. Felt a little <laughs> uncomfortable coming into this group. And within two months, one of them had got into a fight with the dean and quit, and the other one had got sick. And so I became the chair of the design group for the medical school. Oh, and so... <laughs> So it was like, you know, and 
you know, what they say about designing a new medical curriculum is like moving a graveyard. Um, it's challenging. The dead all have friends uh, that come come out. And so I gave, you know, 25, 30 presentations. I have two binders still in my office uh, beside me of all this literature. And we were able to create this, I think, somewhat interesting curriculum, like all curriculum renewal. There is a point that you'd like to get to, and then politics, money, and practicalities, you know, define the delta between the desired and the actual. But mm -hmm. but that was also quite exciting for me as well. And at the end of that, I finally, you know, thought I should take a sabbatical to probably recharge and develop some more skills and also maybe to not be around while the thing starts. Because I knew from talking to David Irby that when you start a new curriculum, you get a decline essentially in happiness and quality. And then within six months, it rises. And in mm -hmm. fact, that happens. So maybe it was just as well I wasn't here because people kept calling it Ian's curriculum. And I'm like, no, we're not <laughs> calling it Ian's curriculum. But but now on 22 of 25 metrics, the curriculum is 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 performing greater. But, you know, one must be careful not to take credit. That could be secular changes, admissions, all kinds of things. But it's not worse. So I went on sabbatical and I taught I knew Kevin by then from going to these um sessions that he was running and and they'd made me a chess scholar I think by then um and and I said to Kevin I'm interested in going and meeting people and he said don't think about what people to meet think about what areas you want to study and so I said okay I'll come back and I brought him a bunch of areas that I was interested in and he said okay I'll introduce you to people who are leaders in the field and then I emailed them all far in advance, like about six or eight months, maybe a year before I was going to go. And they said, any friend of Kevin's is a friend of mine, even though Kevin had not met a couple of them. Um, and and so I was able to go on sabbatical. And right before I left on sabbatical, the job for the chess directorship came available. And Joanna said, you need to apply. And so I applied. So I I was able to go on sabbatical and and sort of hone my skills further for the position that I was going into, which again was very good fortune and very good luck. Um, mm -hmm. and and was able to come back and then assume the directorship of chess. I guess now seven years ago, uh, having just completed my sabbatical, you know, hanging out with David Irby and 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 uh, for for two weeks where we like spent three hours a day together chatting and hanging out with all these very uh, experienced uh, uh, um, health professions, educators, scholars from all around the world. Um, so it was a real treat. And one of the people I went to, uh, Rich Mayer, who's a, who's a cognitive psychologist at UC Santa Barbara, said, you know, Ian, I've had many people spend a sabbatical with me. And he said, no one's worked harder than you. And I went, oh. And he said, no, no, that's not a compliment. You need to take it easy. <laughs> but it was just so interesting. And I was going for these two-week trips because my wife was at home with the kids. And I felt I needed to work very hard when I was away to 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 honor the time that I had. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you plan shorter trips to meet those people in yeah. person? Two weeks, oh, okay. two weeks in, uh, three weeks in Australia, two weeks at UC Santa Barbara, two weeks at UC San Francisco, two weeks in Hamilton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it interspersed by probably four or five weeks between them at home. Oh, wow. Catch, catching up and and right. uh, doing lots of, of home home 
care of the home and the kids to make up for the time I'd been away. Right, right, I can imagine. So in those two or three weeks that you were away or in those visits, what were you doing mostly? Because you didn't have the family around. So we were yeah. just reading, writing. So I was learning mostly. I would, I would go to whatever classes or meetings the people had. I would read like crazy. Rich Meyer said at the end of my two weeks, he said, you know, you've kind of acquired, like I read books while I was there and then we'd meet for lunch the next day for two hours and talk about what I'd read. Uh, so it was, they were very, very generous. It was unbelievably generous. And so Rich said at the end, you know, you've kind of, you know, he said, if I was able to, I'd give you a bachelor's in educational <laughs> psychology because you've kind of, you know, done the work in, in the two weeks you've been with me. Um, so it was just so, so exciting. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was I wasn't writing. Um, I was really just taking notes, keeping, huh. you know, um, finding papers, reading them, talking to people and really building, I think, a foundational under a generalist foundational understanding of of health professions education and and the scholarship that that underlies it right and then when you because you said um joanna talked to you about the job three years in advance yes yes <laughs> there was another conversation in between though which is yeah no no i mean there was you know i they inv chess invited me to be a scholar so i would spend one day a week at chess and i would meet with you know people in the chess community and the fellows and sometimes i wasn't supervising master students then but i would meet with the fellows and and i could identify opportunities for them within the undergrad and postgrad program because i was so closely linked to both of those programs so so it was, a, you know, there was that activity they had. And I just got, I went to chess rounds. I went to chess day. I went to all those things and kind of immersed myself as much as I could, given that I had these other clinical and supervising teaching jobs in the chess community, which was, again, very good fortune for the transition into the community when I became the director. Right. But it was a, a really good experience to do those visits learn yeah. a lot and bring them to this position as a director, not, not so much as a scientist. Mind you, you do both. Yeah. And, and you know, my son was, my son played hockey for a long time. And so I spend a lot of time driving um, my son to hockey. And there's a lot of downtime where you're hanging out with other parents. And it was very interesting. These parents were from all walks of life, mostly the dads, because they were the ones that were sort of driving both the ambition of their kids to play hockey as well as driving them around. And and when they first heard that I was taking the sabbatical where I got, you know, a good chunk of my salary and I was traveling around, they thought, oh, this is just classic, you know, ivory tower, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, wasting of the public dollar. And then they'd hear, they'd say, so where have you been and what have you done? And I'd sort of tell them and by midpoint of the year they were saying i would love to have something like that i would love to be able to to gain some more skills or retool myself and and they recognized in fact the value of it which was i think quite heartening in some ways that 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 even though they would never have the opportunity they were exceedingly supportive of me doing it from at the beginning where they thought this was just a bit of a junket almost Right. But but it sounds to me that this is a really key strategy, especially when you go into a new role or a different kind of role to take the time to explore something different to help you think. I think that's a very wise comment, Syrah. I think, you know, um, again, 
you know, it's that transition piece. And and mm-hmm. and I have some interest in transitions, but I'm not an expert. But that idea of, you know, we know that people are one, you know, the, the, the things that are the challenges are the roles and responsibilities. But but I think there's also this piece of kind of feeling like you belong, uh, right. feeling like you're legitimate. And maybe some people, maybe lots of people feel like they already have that. But for me, it, it helped me feel like I was a legitimate participant in the community by gaining those skills i think and and knowledge and spending time with with you know luminaries quote unquote in the community as well and how did the the community at chess reacted to that responded to that uh seeing you doing that for them yeah i i I don't think they saw me doing it for them quite frankly i think they i think they saw me doing it for me i think they were happy that there was another director quite frankly and it wasn't going to be one of them uh you know (laughs) um but but um, I, I was always warmly welcomed by the community. Now, I have the good fortune of, of working with people that you and many of your listeners will know, you know, Glenn Regeer, Kevin Eva, Laura Nimmin, Joanna Bates, and then the broader community that they a- attract. And so, so, you know, it's a, it, I think chess is a, maybe, I don't I don't have experience with other health profession centers, but but chess is a pretty special place in that it's exceedingly welcoming and supportive. And I so so I had the good fortune that I joined, you know, I have er, early experience with this community and then joined it more fully seven years ago as the director that that I, I like I don't always agree with everyone I work with. I like everyone I work with. I mean, I truly like them. I I hold a holiday party at my house every year. Uh, I cook for, you know, cook the meal. I have a barbecue in the summer when the new fellows come. I truly value the community and the learners that come to this community. Yeah. Well, I imagine now that you mentioned the names, I totally would be like, hmm, coming as the director of that group of people is kind of intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but but I think, you know, as a generalist, you know, the, the residents sometimes say to me, you know, Dr. Scott, we know you're looking things up just to model good behavior for us. And I'm like, no, no, I'm looking things up because I want and need to look them up. I mean, I think, you know, there is this kind of ethic here, particularly with the fellows who will come with all kinds of research ideas that the that the people here will be supervising them, that they may not have much knowledge in, in the areas that that they're investing that they're choosing to investigate so there is this i think ethic of we all are learning we're all on this learning journey and and you know to their credit i would say i've never felt like i didn't belong or i didn't know enough um i don't know as much as them i mean glenn has i don't know thirteen thousand citations or something you know so so you know but but you know like these are people that that enjoy learning and and having others learn and it's it's a it's a great community to be a part of and very nurturing and so i'm 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 very fortunate i i don't know if my transition would have been different if it in a different community right no you you make a good point in there wondering about your legacy as a director have you thought about it what no but i should um i mean <laughs> no um i you know we've i think one of the things that that chess was known for when I first came was still a little bit of an ivory tower place with a lot of researchers who didn't really understand health professions education on the ground. 
And that's changed. And I won't take credit for that. But it's been but part of I guess my legacy, or at least by the consequence, the luck that I've had to be here is that we've worked with enough people in the educational community here, that now, many of the people in in leadership roles in all the health professions have been have worked with chess, have been touched by chess. And so that 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 trope of, oh, these are a bunch of ivory tower folks has now shifted to, wow, the people at chess are really helpful. Mm-hmm. So so I guess other things, you know, we've we've um we've we've stabilized the fellowship. We're just getting ready to launch an Indigenous uh, call for uh, Indigenous-focused health professions, education, and research. Um, we, we're just closing off the hiring of a junior faculty member where, you know, we pushed the university to say we want that paragraph at the bottom of the the application or the the job ad that says we encourage people from all this all walks of life of all perspectives blah 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 we say we want to integrate that into the job description as what we're looking for not this proformative paragraph at the end that a lawyer wrote and they said you can't do that and i said yes we can and mm-hmm. then they finally took it to the lawyer and they said the lawyer says you can do it and so so you know they said and and so so it's a very small thing like you know leadership is a, a bunch of emails that, um, you know, get some traction, but those sorts of things I'm proud of. And I'm proud that that chess has continued on in that kind of cultural zeitgeist that we have where, you know, it's still, you know, faculties of medicine can be a little bit of a jungle sometimes. And we've been able to maintain this uh, culture and ethic of sharing and working with others and being supportive of others' careers and helping them ask good questions and answer good questions and Mm -hmm. so so i'm 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 that that i'm proud of um so so that's maybe you know it's it's not a concrete list of five things it's that that we've been able to continue moving the unit forward sustaining it and and strengthening it i think but not in a making the walls of the cathedral thicker to protect it from from insults from outside but more to to open the doors of the cathedral and continue to welcome people inside and making that it stronger that way. Did you, because I, um, I also met Joanna and I know she was a visionary. You think she had that in mind and that that's why she thought you would be the person for doing that kind of work, like the, the integration connection. Yeah. I, I don't know what Joanna mm-hmm. saw in, in me and I don't know if she saw, she was, she was a family physician as well and and if she saw the value of a generalist um the 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 the, what they what they can bring and how they can maybe respond to different situations I think she might have seen that I think she got to know me as a person and knew I wasn't going to be um a problem or difficult and that and she saw that I was um, I saw leadership as service leadership that that it's it's my job is to not take credit or to aggrandize my reputation. I have an ego for sure, but it was really about um, making serving others and helping them be better. And that's something that Joanna was very good at. And maybe she saw that in me. And that's, you know, I still like to get credit but I don't go out of my way to get credit. In fact, my wife will say I go to, out of my way not to take credit for things, uh, which, you know, 
can can then sometimes come back and bite you but mm-hmm. but uh, i believe in that service leadership model because in the end you know we're all going to die and in the end it's the journey that we take and the relationships that we develop that are probably as important as our accomplishments yeah very well said so you described to me a number of situations and experiences that you said just landed on you or it was just by chance that you found it but i want to know if there was an unexpected opportunity that you took that became a defining moment in your career Yeah, I mean, I mean, going to medical school is a defining career. It was an opportunity, and but I, I sought it. I applied and was offered a spot. At, I was offered a spot at McMaster University, and I was offered a spot at UBC. And UBC would have been easier. I mean, I would have had to go back to UBC, and they would have had to find the library card they cut up in front of me when I dropped out. When I went to the registrar's office to uh, to to drop out, they said, you have your library card. I thought they wanted it for ID. And then they took it from me and they took a big pair of scissors and cut it in half in front of me <laughs> to make it completely final. Wow. But 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 I think, you know, choosing, you know, I, I went to university. I took the bus every day to go to Simon Fraser University. I lived at home because it was, you know, economical and and probably comfortable for me as well. I think going away to McMaster was a defining episode because I learned, I met all of these highly interesting people. I developed as a person. I have lifelong friends. I was just visit, visited Kingston about a month ago to visit one of my roommates from medical school. You know, that, that was a defining moment. And then, you know, I think, I think saying yes to becoming the, the lead of the curriculum design for the medical school. I mean, it was a big deal. Like, yeah. like, People were, and and I don't like conflict, and and people were angry at me. I mean, people said things like, I hope I don't get sick in this province. This new medical school is is just going to be the worst thing. People aren't going to be able to, you know, you're taking away three weeks of EKG instruction. People are going to die. I mean, they were, you know, people are very upset about change, as you might imagine. Um, and people are very wedded to their thing, and and you know, everybody lost a little bit and the gains were kind of more dispersed across the curriculum. And so, so, you know, saying yes to that, which was probably, you know, like it was, it was probably the most stressful part of my life uh, as I was, I was acting department head twice of the department of family practice as well, but that's a whole other story. But, but, but I, but take saying yes to that was very stressful, but, but resulted in me really having to grow as an individual. And I guess sometimes, you know, those situations that, that are not easy sometimes result in significant growth. So I think that, that was also a, a, an important, important opportunity. I guess the the last thing I was there, there was a, there's a leadership program at UBC for new heads of departments and new assistant deans. And I was on I was invited to be on the planning team because again, as I as is my want, I was invited when I became the director of chess to to become part of the cohort to mm-hmm. learn leadership skills for a year. And I came to everything because I thought it was just so interesting and and so I came to everything. So at the end of the year, they said, would you like to join the planning team? And I said, sure. And then, and then within about a year, the person who was the academic director got sick and the provost called me up and said, what are we going to do? Ian? And I said, uh, he said, can you come and meet me in two days? And I said, sure. And so, so I talked to another woman on the planning team, this lovely, lovely woman, Beth Haverkamp, who is a psychologist. And I said, I'll do it if you do it. And so we became the academic directors of the leadership program. Again, that was, you know, 
happenstance and and sort of luck in some ways. And so I got to work with this woman for three the three years. I just we just stepped down in June of this year. And that was again, I got to meet all these department heads from all these disciplines and talk to them. And and they're really committed to leadership. And and few of them want to be the leader, but they recognize the value of taking on those jobs. And that's also been, I think, quite an opportunity for me in study in human nature about how these people really are 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 serving their discipline and their department and so that's been a great mm. i think tr- not transformative to that degree i think medical school is probably the most transformative opportunity but it's been really heartening to see these folks that are so committed to supporting their discipline their students the people uh mm. in their department right it's so fascinating for me to see a kind of the thread in your life about when you want to learn something you want to talk to people and meet people. So you learn through meeting people, of course, reading as well, but the conversations with people that you never know what it takes you to, right? Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So I would like to switch in the last few minutes what I call the small things in life. So we're going a little bit lighter in here. I appreciate all your thoughts because they're really, really uh, inspiring. The first thing that you mentioned you cook for your team. Is this something you like doing? Is this a hobby? Are you a chef? No, I'm not a foodie at mm. all. Um, I'm an efficient cook. Uh, <laughs> so but my wife still is astounded that I can look in the fridge and figure out what to make with what's on the shelves. Um, my, bec- my, 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 my dad was out a lot at night for a, a number of reasons, uh, <laughs> which probably related to him being an alcoholic mostly. And so it was my mom and sister and I, and we did lots of baking together. So I was baking when I was six or seven. Uh, and so, and then I took cooking in high school for mm-hmm. one year, but I realized I was the only person in the class that was serious about cooking. Everybody else was taking it because it was a way to get a credit. And so, so, but so I took cooking in high school. I've always been interested in cooking and I, I like cooking because my kids are both at university now. Um, I, we do, my wife and I do less cooking, but, but I used to do like Sunday, I would cook three or four meals for the week on Sunday because to obviate us coming home and saying, what are we going to eat? Let's order in. So, so, right. so I do less cooking now, but I, I do like cooking. I guess the other thing, and this may be a theme for, older men is I do woodworking uh, so, oh, so, yeah. so so I'm a woodworker and um, you know that you can learn a lot of things on the internet uh, so so I've I've uh, I've made uh, most of the wooden furniture in our house now so I've made beds and tables and chairs and all kinds of things from essentially you know making lots of mistakes and fixing them along the way so mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. I have a few friends in this same hobby. I know. There's a health professions education thing of woodworkers. I don't know what it's about. Yeah. So you said you had your children are already in university. So now I'm yeah. curious. What is the thing that you miss the most when they were at home growing up with you? That you have to be more hands-on. And what is the thing that you enjoy the most now that they're probably a little getting out of the house? Yeah, so I I miss just being around them. Like I was the I drove, you know, my son to hockey more than any other dad. I was constantly picking up other kids because I knew that this wasn't going to last forever. I worked with a woman who would say to me, her kids were both out of this house, and she said I would kill to sit in a cold gym for the weekend right now. And I thought, <laughs> okay, 
you know, I've got to seize this. And so I would go to my daughter's because I worked at the university and I had often control of my schedule. I could go to my daughter's swimming lessons and take her in the pool. I could um, go to the school and help with with school activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'd be essentially me and a whole bunch of moms. And I think they thought, you know, I was an unemployed, you know, layabout, <laughs> uh, which was fine. But I, I was very involved in the kids' lives. And, and I just enjoyed, you know, I say to people when they have a child, I say, you know, this sounds selfish, but you get to live your life all over again. Hmm. You you get to experience the first day of kindergarten and all <laughs> of those things, and you get to live your life again. And so I loved being a parent. I I I before through two or three years before the kids left home, I was quite worried about what that was going to be like and dreading that. But then when they went, they were on their way to becoming uh, adults, and and it was very interesting that. So I I missed them being around all the time. My son got back from university last night, but he was in bed this morning, so I didn't get to see him before I came to work. Uh, but I'll see him tonight, and my daughter's coming back in another week. But I miss them being around. But but what I value with them being out of the house is they're becoming their own people, and you see them mature. And every time they come home, they're older and wiser, and and uh, and and they're people that have definition, um, and and the conversations are much better as well the conversations are much better so 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 i i'm enjoying that part of my life and their lives more than i imagined because i didn't know that this was would be part of it i thought it would just be they'd be out of the house and i'd be missing all that other stuff and i'm in fact enjoying this part of their and my life quite a lot very cool so you've done a lot Uh, i'm curious about what remains undone that you've wanted to get done for years. Yeah, I, I do like doing research, and and well, we didn't talk so much about that, and I'm completely fine with with mm-hmm. with that. I do like asking and answering questions. I'm 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 working with a very smart woman who was at SFU, who's a health services researcher, who's now in Dalhousie. She received a Canada Research Chair, and I'm on this research team, and you know we're looking at where do new graduated family doctors go? What do they do? How do they practice? How do all family doctors practice? Why can no one find a family doctor right now? And this was, you know, somewhat on her part, more than mine, prescient work four years ago. But, you know, we we just had a paper published in CMAG yesterday. It was on the cover page of CMAG. I mean, it, this work is very interesting to me. And and I've been really enjoying working with, with her and the rest of the team. There's a qualitative and quantitative component to that. Um, I'm coming back. I, 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 I'm do, writing an outline right now where I'm thinking about this concept of belonging and maybe it goes all the way back to me dropping out of UBC, you know, when I went, but, you know, I, I said to Kevin, because I had the good fortune of having Kevin next door to me in my office, Kevin, what do you, what do you know about belonging in the literature? And he said, nothing. And he said, but Rola just contacted me three days, Rola Ajawi just contacted me three days ago and asked me the same question. So Rola and Kevin and I are starting to think about this concept of belonging, which I think is different than, than identity formation and different than hospitality and different than community of practice. I think it embodies something else. And, and it's always viewed as a good thing, right? Like, like 
you know, how do you help a person belong in a place? But right. but maybe maybe the place needs to change to accept the person rather than the person changing to fit into the place. And yet it's always conceptualized as how can we help integrate people into this new setting? So we're sort of problematizing this idea of belonging. And so I'm, I'm enjoying that. And so uh, what's next for me is I think when I'm no longer the director, uh, um, I would I, I would like to spend more time being a scientist because because there's a lot of still you know as as people know who are leaders you often it draws you away from some of the other parts of your life and so I'd, I'd look forward to doing more um, scholarship and working with learners I really enjoy working with learners because I I, I, you know, I say to the residents, I learn something every day. I'm supervising a master's student right now. I'm learning so much, you know. And so, you know, the great privilege, I think, of of our jobs and maybe most of your listeners is the expectation is we learn something every day. And that's a gift, I think. Oh, I think it's sure. a real gift. Yeah, I think that's what keeps us a lot of us in this business, for sure. Yeah. yeah my, my final question, Ian. You mentioned that you have so many interests. You are a generalist because you like a, a, you are interested in learning about many things. But you also understand that sometimes you envy people who have a particular focus. If you were to choose anything, anything, not just academia, uh, to become for a month and become an, an expert on that, what would you choose to be? Yeah, I, I mean, I, the easy answer for me is some aspect of health professions education. But I think deep down, you know, I would I would like to, you know, within the limits of my ability and both physical and cognitive, I would like I would like to de devote time to to writing and probably writing nonfiction. Oh, um, cool. I, 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 I'm a, not a good reader still because I just we didn't have an ethic of reading in the house and, and I'm quite busy and. And at the end of the day, I'm tired. And so I tend to fall asleep when I read, which is a problem. But when I go on holidays, I'll read three or four books. And so I I like, I like, I like writing and I like reading, even though I said I I I'm I'm I may have become a worse writer over the years. I still like writing and like the construction of sentences and the turn of the phrase and all of those things. So so I have a friend who's a scriptwriter in in uh, Hollywood, and I see how hard she works. I don't know that I could have a career of that because I see the reality of it. Like many jobs, it's not as romantic as you imagine. But to take a month and have nothing else to do but but write uh, fiction, I think would be quite fun to develop greater skills around that. Maybe that's the next sabbatical for you. <laughs> <laughs> People say you always get one sabbatical. The question is what you do on the first sabbatical determines if you get a second one. Right. <laughs> so. Okay, Ian, thank you so much. It was really enjoyable chatting with you today. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's been a delight and, and it's been quite fun. You've had me think about things that I haven't ever thought about or haven't thought about in a long time. So it's been quite enjoyable for me as well. well thank you for saying that. Well, thank you, everyone. And we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.